Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor at the TLS, and I'm afraid my usual co-host, Alex Clark, is still poorly. So we are sending her lots of get well vibes and we will talk to her in the new year. But meanwhile, I am delighted again to welcome out from behind the curtain our editor, Charlotte Pardy, who talked to us last week. How are you, Charlotte? I'm thrilled to be back. What a regular feature I'm becoming. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Well, last week you told us an eye-watering story about where you get your coffee from, which we won't dwell on again, <laughs> except just to say that I then heard later on, I was telling someone else about it, so it's a very good story, and someone else said that they had some coffee that someone had brought which had been made by the same method, but this time using weasels, and they never dared to drink it. Weasel ah. sounds worse, doesn't it? Somehow, I don't know why. It's a bit, it's a bit prejudiced of us. But anyway, they didn't dare to try it. I told them that your cat poop coffee was very nice. Yeah, I loved it. I very much enjoyed it. I haven't drunk it again. I know I've been talking about uh-huh. it a lot, but I haven't drunk it again. Maybe that's because I haven't had the opportunity to. Who knows? Maybe I'll be back reporting that that's all I drank over Christmas. Who knows? Yeah, you had to go completely wired because all you did was drink cat poop coffee. So, given that this is in fact our last podcast of the year, I was going to ask you, Charlotte, if you felt like casting an eye back and just the one and thinking about whether there were any sort of highlights of the podcasting year that stuck out for you. And I don't mean any, none of this is about quality. It's all absolutely wonderful, of course, not better or worse, but just stuff that you remembered or that stuck with you. Was there anything? Yes, there was. I don't know if you remember an episode that we did quite a few months ago now when we did um, about the Tour de France. I wasn't on that one. Oh, I wasn't you there. I was it. jealous oh, well. because you were talking about the Tour de France. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was so, so good. And actually, maybe this one because it's the freshest in my mind, but last week with Simon was just a fascinating conversation. And I mean, wasn't that audio extract just phenomenal yeah do you know I was going to say last week's as well and it sounds silly as we're like uh last week's but it really (laughs) did it really did stick out and a few people have said to me that they liked the interview and also that they liked the audio that they liked the sound of it because it did sound really extraordinary I'm going to try not to take it personally that the first thing you've chosen was one that didn't have me in it but you know (laughs) that's absolutely fine that's absolutely it's not personal please it's not personal (laughs) no no honest would you like to hear what mine were I would love to hear what yours were what were they thank you you could have just shut me down and said no I don't want to hear it but and I'm going to be really offended if it's not my first ever appearance on the podcast being last week now yes of course that was why that's why (laughs) it was a highlight nothing to do with Simon McBurney and the dark is rising 
I was just having a think back about some of the ones that I really kind of enjoyed or stuck out. I loved the Paul Muldoon and Joyce one when he talked us through the first five words, maybe, maybe six words of Ulysses and kind of tied them all together for us. I really remember, do you remember the one with Richard Dunn about measuring things? Yes, that one actually was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it? Just totally fascinating because it just seemed as though on the face of it, the book that we were talking about was just kind of about, oh, you know, what measurements do people use throughout the world and blah. And actually it turns out to be how the world works. The whole world turns on what you choose to measure, how you choose to measure it, who decides what it is, you know. Yeah, that one was really fascinating. Do you remember the one we did with Mary Beard about Roman mementos? I do. I do. And I actually love a bit of ancient history. So that was fascinating as well. Super interesting. Mm. She basically told us that there was, I think it was, was it like something like a pen? It was a stylus, I think, maybe. I can't remember it properly. But what it had inscribed on it was, you know, my uncle or whatever went to Londinium. I mean, it's not this, I'm making it up. My uncle went to Londinium and all he brought me back was this lousy pen. It was basically, <laughs> basically, they were doing that too. That was very pleasing to hear. And just another one I remember, just because it was thrilling to talk to him, was Wallace Shawn. Yeah. It's actually funny when you start to look back, there's just so many brilliant episodes, isn't there, throughout the year? And it's yes, nice to remember them. We can't really say that anymore, can we? We can't just sit and go, gosh, how brilliant we are. Not us, them. How brilliant all our wonderful guests were. All our guests are. That is yeah. much more appropriate. It is what all our guests are. However, can I just say one of my one of my favourite sort of pieces or things that we do is the gardening mm -hmm. chat. I've missed it. Oh. I love it. Yeah. And that we can say is us. It's the only bit we can say is us. And well, you that guys mainly. But yeah, no, that gardening. Well, I'm glad you love it. And I sorely miss it. But if we were doing gardening chat every week, it would just be like, Oh, well, the garden's frozen and it looks terrible <laughs> and I can't do any gardening. But it's a good point. In the new year, things will look up. Uh, we can start sowing things and we can start talking about it again and we'll get Alex back and we'll we'll compare compare gardens. Meanwhile, I need to tell you also what's in the TLS because we've got a double issue of the TLS, the festive paper. The lead is, it's not all festive, of course, got all sorts of interesting things in it. The lead is a piece by Peter Godfrey Smith, who has written so brilliantly about other minds, particularly the octopus mind. And he reviews two books, one by a man who claimed to have lived in the forest with deer for seven years, basically as a deer. And there's another one about how the animal closest to us in many ways might be the parrot. So that's kind of interesting. There's a really wonderful long poem by Glyn Maxwell called Wreck, which is very, very powerful and actually really devastating, which might not make you want to read it, but you really should read it because I think it's really wonderful and it will be an important poem, I think. So that's Wreck by Glyn Maxwell. Uh, and also the legendary uh, TLS Christmas quiz, where we ask you not to look things up online. And it includes literary quotations on such subjects as toads, shaving, footpaths, definitions of love, all the usual quiz subjects you might expect. But coming up on this week's show, game chips straight from the agar and bacon bodies covered in ketchup. We look at British cooking in idea and reality and ghosts of Christmas present. J.S. Barnes takes us on a spooky literary tour of the festive season. So first, if I were to invite you in for Panna Kelty or a curate's eye, I wonder whether you would be delighted or alarmed. 
you would, in fact, have no need to fear, unless you're worried about my cooking, which might well be justifiable, because we're talking about food, specifically British food, because this week Lucy Lethbridge has reviewed the British cookbook, Authentic Home Cooking Recipes from England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland by Ben Mervis for us. And we're very glad that she's here to talk us through some of the delights on offer. Lucy, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. You start your piece with some wonderful imagery of the kind of nostalgic stuff people seem to want to see in cookbooks. Do you want to share a bit of that with us? Well, I think there has been increasingly over the last couple of decades an interest in old-fashioned British cooking. And I think this is part of a sort of general nostalgia for locally sourced, seasonal, slow-cooked, rather kind of heavy, stodgy food. And uh, so you get all things like kind of ox cheek and big roasts, huge puddings. And I think this is comfort eating, isn't it? And it's part of a feeling that the past was a place of, you know, pre-microwave comfort and solace. Mm. I love the way that you say about how some of it's presented. Roadkill served on rusty enamel dishes, which I have to say that one that one sounds even a little bit dangerous rather than appetising. It's part of this sort of new macho cooking, isn't it? Where you get people yeah. like Fernley Whittingstall and Jamie Oliver, you know, putting their dirty allotment fingers right into the salad. Or kind of burying a pig for 24 hours, that sort yes, of thing. Yes, exactly. Or eating a thousand year old egg. Mm. And there's the other side of it, isn't there, which is there. There's another thing you say, which is very evocative. Muffins kept warm in linen napkins on grainy old wooden chopping boards. It's the kind of agar chic. That's another side of it, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. And it's a kind of nostalgia that seems to come round every 40 years or so. And I'm sure it must be related to there's something in the air, some deep yearnings that somehow seem fulfilled. I was thinking of it when I was looking back at some cookbooks of the early 70s, and you get it there as well. And it's part of that sort of Laura Ashley milkmaid dresses, dresses heaving with mismatched crockery. And then in the 80s, it sort of disappears and we get Nouvelle Cuisine and we get big white plates and tiny little bits in the middle. And I think it's coming back again and it clearly reflects, well, it may reflect a kind of social insecurity. There are things in the air which makes us nostalgia for certain old certainties. Yes. And while we all possibly wishing about hanging around the Argo eating, you know, drop scones, is of course a million miles away from how the vast majority of people actually eat and cook, isn't it? It is. It's a fantasy, really. And a lot of the recipes in this book, I mean, he has happily interspersed kind of slow-cooked ox cheek with very deliciously easy put together things like prawn jalfrezi, which is a sort of newer, obviously a newer kind of recipe. But a lot of the things are uncookable, but that doesn't make them any the less evocative. I mean, it'd be very, very hard for almost anyone to make jelly deals. I'm sorry to be prejudiced here, but really, why would you? <laughs> well, if there are places out there who will do it for you, if you want to go out, but to jelly your own, I do agree. And it's those little tiny eels. They're not those rather lovely kind of smoked eels that you get in posh fishmongers. They're those little tiny Thames eels. And I don't know yeah. where you find them. Hang around the Thames and then stick them in a bit of gelatine. I did once have jelly deals in a restaurant. And this is completely by the by. Sorry, I just really remember it. And the waitress, I think it was French, said, I said, what are these like? And she basically made a face and went, they're not very nice. And I thought, well, but they're, you know, they're a British delicacy. I'll try them. So uh, kind of basically, despite her 
turns out very good advice. I ordered it. They weren't cheap either. It wasn't at a jelly. It wasn't a pie and mash shop, which is where you should probably have it. It was this kind of slightly more posh place. Anyway, I had the jelly deals and I've never done this since they were so unpleasant. I had to just spit them out into my napkin and not eat anything at all. And she had the good grace not to say, I told you so. <laughs> my sister had them once. She said they were revoltingly crunchy. Just every, I mean, everything crunchy and slimy, and oh. as though you had been hanging around the Thames and just put gelatin in your mouth. Anyway, sorry, this wonderful British dish, and I'm sure some people like it. Well, it's probably but, very posh now, like a lot of this kind of peasant, yeah, stuff, probably thing you get in expensive gastro pubs, isn't it? Yeah, 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 probably. Well, more fool me for ordering it. <laughs> <laughs> but the author of the book, Ben Mervis, so he knows his market, doesn't he? Tell us about him. Well, he has a, a magazine. He's a food writer and he has a magazine called Fair, which is beautifully produced and very glossy. And it goes to the cities of the world and it it gives you a kind of eatery tour of the food of, you know, say Lisbon or somewhere lovely. So he's a sort of gastronomic traveller. But he's not actually born in the UK, is he? No, no, no. He's American. Uh, so he brings a kind of outsider's eye to these rather odd dishes that are part of our heritage. But he has, as I say, he has sprinkled in some modern ones. So it is a usable cookbook for those who don't want to jelly their eels. But he clearly loves this sort of poetry, which I think is so beautiful, of the old names, you know, names like Cold Cannon and Flummery. And there was one I found called Oh Scrumpets which actually sounded absolutely delicious, which is little bits of breaded lamb fried, like sort of lamb oh. goujon. I thought that sounded absolutely lovely. But anyway, they're traditionally called scrumpets. And I imagine that they're made with leftovers. So he loves all that. And he's used as a resource. There's a book that was published about 20 years ago by Laura Mason, which is a kind of inventory of the foods of Britain. And he's used that as a, as a source. And it is incredibly exhaustive on exactly the tiny, minute regional differences in, you know, griddle scones. Mm. And it's got historical scope as well as kind of geographical. Yes, he includes a little short essay in the beginning of each section. It's divided into food sections. And at the beginning of each, there is a very broad historical run through. I don't know how useful it would be if you knew quite a bit already or even if you knew only a little bit but it sets the scene it's a little scene setter mm -hmm. I was interested to read in your piece you say the history of food is the history of human ingenuity and actually stuff that um, might be considered as, as waste or rather the fear of, of wasting something well I think it is isn't it and looking through this cookbook I was really struck by how much is about what's left over and particularly, I think, and this is particularly interesting now, is, of course, people ate meat far more sparingly. I mean, we tend to think of it being a very meat-heavy diet that we ate mm. 200 years ago. But in fact, actually, meat was extremely sparingly eaten, probably only once a week for people who weren't rich. And therefore, you had to make the leftovers go as far as you could. So things like dripping, which was the leftover fat from the the roast on Sunday. And I think that what you see in these recipes is every last scrap has to be used, everything. Sour milk has to be used up, vegetable peelings, turnip tops. It's probably the sort of cooking we should all be doing right now, basically, <laughs> to cut down on waste and to save money and not to eat too much meat and all of those things. 
I think it is. I think it is exactly the sort of diet we should be following. And it's not as heavy on dairy as you would think. I mean, they're, you know, obviously sort of feasting food is fatty because I, I suppose people, I mean, people had a great deal more exercise. Their houses would have been colder, a lot more sort of manual labour. So you'd need far more calories from saturated fat and dairy. But nonetheless, for the most part, our diet, our daily diet until relatively recently, it seemed to me, is grain and vegetables, variations of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps we can, um, you know, something for us to learn. And so you say for the for the actual recipes, they do include the sort of things that people might actually make. Could you could you or would you use this as a practical cookbook? Yes, you could. I and mean, I'm not quite sure who it would be for, because the a very accomplished cook is probably going to find these recipes elsewhere in places like Jane Grigson. And the absolutely basic cook, I mean, he, he, he tells you how to boil an egg, which uh, okay. <laughs> he does egg and soldiers, which, of course, is, you know, very it is nursery food. You know, mm. It has a very sort of particular nostalgic appeal. But I'm not sure we need to know how to put toast in the toaster and it's quite an easy recipe isn't it one egg one piece of bread it's a pretty easy one but the person who needs to know how to boil an egg isn't going to then sit down and make breaded monkfish cheeks so I think he's he's tried to cover all bases and so it is quite hard to know exactly who it'd be for I think it's for the bedside table it's for the kind of lovely meditative opening up and reading about something deeply strange made with something that one probably even wouldn't think of cooking with and a little bit about its history. Mm. Well, as you said, you said a lot of the pleasure of learning about the regional variations is the little kind of local quirks. And also you talk about the poetry of the old names of things. Which which were your favourites? Which ones stood out? Well, I do love flummery. Is flummery, so I have not looked this up and I am genuinely thinking this on the top of my head. Is it a kind is it like a kind of milky Victorian pudding? Well, it's it's kind it's it's actually it's a porridge, it's a form of porridge. Oh, okay. So no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Every conceivable variation of porridge is to be found here. So yes, actually, if we were looking for an ideal reader, it would be the porridge eater. But the no flummery is is a sort of oatmeal porridge made with honey and double cream. Oh, it sounds delicious. Isn't it? Absolutely delicious. And I just love the name of it. I love everything about it. It's such a fancy name. I thought it was a kind of delicate syllabobby type thing, but obviously not. I think it's a sort of real treat. It's a treat breakfast, isn't it? Mm, mm. And you also, I mentioned earlier on Panna Kelty and what was the other one? A curate's eye, which is, just sounds alarming. <laughs> it's a fried egg in a piece of fried bread with a hole in it so you fry the egg in the hole in the in the fried bread brilliant and that's the curate's eye looking out at you yes i don't know what it is with curates and eggs yes <laughs> there's clearly something I thought there's a book coming on someone someone has to write that book the curate <laughs> and the egg and you were telling what else are you telling us about a tweed kettle which is not a tweed kettle um a scotch woodcock which is not a scotch woodcock and an orkney brunie Yes, which is a which is a ginger cake rather than a brownie. I was quite mm. interested that there are quite a few sort of brunies appear, which must be, I suppose, there must be a cultural memory of that which appears in the brownie, the modern brownie. Mm. But they're not necessarily chocolate based. No, they're ginger. 
a sort of heavy, heavy kind of treacly ginger cake. Right. Okay. I always like the um, some of the old. I think it's because of uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Some of the very old Scottish cooking terms come out of French. They used to say ashet for plate sometimes. And there's another oh, that's one. That's right. There's another one. I think there's a theory that you know there's um, petticoat tails for the shape of the shortbread. Oh, there's yes. a theory that that's petit gotel, which I think is a uh, a part of the clothing or something. I can't. There's lots of wonderful byways like that that you can go down does the book have that kind of thing it might do it's extremely comprehensive I mean not in the little essays he doesn't he doesn't mention those but each recipe comes with a tiny little introduction you know with sources and derivations and so on Mm. and finally you lament that there's no mention of Parson Woodford tell us why that's such a missed opportunity in this case he doesn't make very much of literature, which is rather a pity, really, mm. because, uh, you know, eating in fiction, things like Beatrix Potter, you know, cabbage gardens and tables groaning with with tea and um, hot buttered toast and these things. I mean, these really are part of food culture and mm. he doesn't make much of it at all. And of course, Parson Woodford in his diaries is the greediest of all Englishmen who ever live. I've hardly read any. Is he really? <laughs> oh, fantastic. He's so greedy and gluttonous and feasting and has these vast meals. He has, you know, vast lunches, which he, which he has on his travels around his, um, uh, around his parish. And wherever he stops, he has another vast meal and someone cooks him something. He's marvellous. And there's, but there's no mention of him at all, which is a great sadness. So the thing for us to do is, yes, read this, not for cooking, but by the bedside. And meanwhile, if you want to find out what people were eating, read Parson Woodford. Though I suspect he was he was very much on the privileged side of what people were eating, wasn't he? He wasn't eating turnip tops. Yes. And I suppose also being the parish priest, he probably got the, you know, he got the table laid out for him. You know, mm. he got a festive welcome. But I mean, the difference between... And I suppose that is why cookbooks are not entirely representative of an age, because, of course, recipes that get written down tend to be recipes for feasting rather than for every day. I mean, even today, I mean, someone reading actually most modern recipe books wouldn't that wouldn't really give a picture of how we ate every day, because what we eat every day is probably more likely to be something like a microwave meal or Mm. be toast. Or bits of everything that's left that you put in a soup and hope it turns out all right, that yeah, kind of thing. exactly. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> but Lucy, many thanks for talking us through this today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Still to come on the show, Shadows and the Supernatural, we go to the dark side of the festive season. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, if you're feeling fed up of cheery tinsel and bright lights and I wish it could be Christmas every day chiming out of every speaker, then you've come to the right place because we're going to have a look at the flickering candles, unexplained noises and worse of the season. J.S. Barnes, whose own novels include Dracula's Child and the City of Dr. Moreau, has written about some of the horror-filled delights to be found this month. Jonathan, many thanks for joining us. Not at all. Lovely to be here. So you start by talking about M.R. James, arguably the master of ghost stories. Tell us about his story, The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral. Yes, well, I think I start and finish talking about M.R. James, who is, as you say, the master of a certain sort of a very English ghost story that does have this kind of correlation with the season, in part because how and when he first read the stories in part, let's be honest, you know, with the BBC television adaptations of the 1970s, A Ghost Story for Christmas, that that famous strand. I think the first one, actually, yes, the first one that was filmed in that particular strand was The Treasure of Abbot Thomas. Yeah, which somehow feels particularly, particularly festive. It has that great line in it, which I quote at the start of the piece, I find that I absolutely shrink from the dark season. Mm. But don't you start by talking about the stalls of Barchester Cathedral? Sorry, what did I say? Treasure Rabbit Thomas. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, they all blow into one after a couple of glasses of wine. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk us through a bit what happens in the stall of Barchester Cathedral? Yes, the stalls of Barchester Cathedral. That was the first story that was, I think, adapted in the 70s for the BBC by a um, director called Lawrence Gordon Clark, great television director who adapted the stories as well like a lot of the mr james's you get only you get any sort of glimpses of the story and it's sort of filtered through a different narrator and layers of documents and sort of pieced together with you know extracts from journals clippings things like that and you sort of build up the story that way um it's about a cleric archdeacon haynes who becomes very sort of gets that sort of impatient about his predecessor's longevity in the role is very very pleased to take over the job after his predecessor dies slightly unexpectedly and he's not long started when he seems to be kind of afflicted by various odd happenings we realize he's being haunted by by something 
and we start to we start to guess there might be a connection between what's affecting him and the sudden demise of his predecessor. Mm. And as you say, it's kind of glanced at, isn't it? It's kind of mentioned and you so what is it? There's a sound of a cat and there's no cat living there. Someone knocks on the door, but then when he answers, there's no one there. It's all done by suggestion, isn't it? Yeah, it's all done by suggestion. And James is very good um, in that story and in others at never joining the dots for you. You know, by far his strongest story. I mentioned in the piece as well, you know, his sort of masterpiece really, Oh, whistle and I come to you, my lad, mm. in which there is never any clear explanation. There are sort of you know, a disparate range of strange events and we are invited to make connections on our own. I always think that, you know, if you over-explain the ghost story and you say, you know, you know, this particular person is the, is the ghost of somebody and we know exactly who they are, exactly what they want, you know, it kind of limits the world, I think, and it can make, yeah, it makes the story less, less scary. Well, it's also that thing of it, then it stays with you. Because if you don't know exactly what happened, you're kind of stuck with it, trying to work out, you know, what it is, isn't it? You talk about a correlation between this kind of ghost story and this time of year. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's a very that's a very ancient correlation, I think, isn't it? Between the telling of this kind of story and um and this particular time of year. And indeed, perhaps Christmas. I mean, you started off, you know, saying, um, you know, if you want a reaction against you know, Slade and Tinsel and and all of that kind of rather forced jollity. I'm sure this is part of it, is a kind of reaction against that, isn't it? You know, it's wanting it's wanting the shadow as well as the light. Mm. And you were saying about, you know, the night's drawing, you have to light a fire, the wind is howling around the outside. And what did you say? The the veil seems a bit thinner than usual. That sounds like the sort of thing I would I was right, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> It it is the sort of thing you wrote. It's exactly the sort of thing you wrote. And you also say that, so M.R. James absolutely understood this connection to the kind of crouching by the fireside, you know, in in the dark or the storm or whatever, and listening to stories, but so too did Dickens. Yes, and I mean, there was a sort of of lineage, isn't there? I mean, James, of course, both James and Dickens very much understood the power of stories read aloud. You know, James explicitly wrote his his short stories to be read aloud to his audience of friends and undergraduates at Cambridge and then at Eton, you know, and Dickens, of course, you know, famously read stories aloud over and over and over, you know, and many, many scholars will say they contributed to his death, don't they? Because he put so much of himself into them. He, they were such performances. That's the story, isn't it? Yes, particularly yeah. it's the death of Nancy, isn't it, that he read over and over and um, he thought mm. taken years off his life. You know, the Dickens ghost story, I think, which is kind of most firmly in that tradition, you know, and feels in some ways like a precursor to the Jamesian stories, is The Signalman. Mm. Tell us about that story, because it's not a terribly well-known one, I don't think. I mean, it's obviously not as well-known as A Christmas Carol, kind of what is. Yes, quite. But actually, I think, weirdly, it is actually quite often forgotten or overlooked that A Christmas Carol really is a ghost story. I mean, that's what it is. Yes, yes. And, you know, Dickens absolutely knows, you know, how to dial up the spookiness of it. And there were parts of that story, obviously, you know, it's kind of, it's a moral fable, isn't it? Probably more than anything else. But there were certainly bits, you know, which lean hard into the ghost story tradition um, that Dickens was interested in. But, I mean, the signalman, I think, very late... Dickens, that seems to me to sort of throw forward to that that kind of you know, English ghost story of the late 19th century that we think of in particular. And again, going back to what I was saying about things not being explained, 
I mean, a, a Christmas Carol, you know, we absolutely understand the moral purpose, don't we, of the of the ghosts, and we absolutely see their effect on Scrooge. The Signalman, yeah, feels it feels much more modern in a way because you know mm. there is something going on with time. For, you know, for anyone that doesn't know the story, I envy you. Gosh, if you don't know the story of the Signalman, yes, um, obviously go away and um, and and read it. It is about a a Signalman, very very lonely job in the you know relatively early days of the of the railways and he sits in his little um little shed and he um does his duty to the railway but he has an awful lot of time to sit alone and, and think and also educate himself dickens tells us and he becomes convinced he's seeing kind of not quite being haunted in a way but he's seeing glimpses of the future of some you know impending tragedy um and we know that at least a couple of these these glimpses subsequently come come true but again it's nothing is explained there's no sort of straight lines drawn between the events and so yeah there's something very very eerie and troubling i think in that late story partly came out of dickens's own experience with a a, a rail crash of course so it's kind of haunted by that experience as well yeah it's got a kind of double double haunting is that present i know you went to see this exhibition to be read at dusk which is at the the charles dickens museum which is about dickens and ghosts and the supernatural do they talk about the signalman a lot or is it is that touched on there that's right yeah i mean the exhibition is well worth a look it's i mean it's you know i think i say in the piece you know its interest is mostly biographical you know there was certainly stuff there on the christmas carol and signalman and you know the other ghost stories that he he wrote because he was always interested in you know think right back to the pickwick papers has got these sort of tales of the supernatural and you know the fat boy that wants to make your flesh creep and and all of that the exhibition is probably focuses more on dickens's own interest in the supernatural and he was a kind of um, as people will know i'm sure he was a kind of sort of hopeful skeptic in a way but you know he never found anything which which seemed to convince him i think of the um, the existence of the supernatural and you know he met you know many spiritualists and table rappers and, and people like that and was kind of fairly scathing ultimately about all of them it was almost as though he was he was trying to get someone who would convince him and he would go okay i believe this one but he, he couldn't do it could he it feels like that and yes i mean he had great friendship didn't he with um William Howitt, who was a writer, but a great enthusiast, almost a sort of evangelist, I think, for, for spiritualism. And he was keen to find a haunted house. I think one of the reasons The Signalman stands out so much is that Dickens's ghost stories are often quite jokey. You know, there's often a really kind of comic aspect to them, not just Christmas Cow, but um, others as well. If anyone's, you know, remembers his kind of co-author book, The Haunted House, which was him and Mrs. Gaskell and Wilkie Collins, you know, a sort of pantheon of writers of the day. Very sort of what we would now call tongue-in-cheek, I think. But yeah, there was obviously something there that was more serious, wanting perhaps to believe. It, it, it kind of, again, he sort of prefigures Arthur Conan Doyle in that respect, and you know, the man that kind of wanted to believe. Obviously, Doyle ultimately goes goes one way, and Dickens um, stays very much in the in the rationalist lane. Yes, yeah, yeah, because Doyle goes wholeheartedly into it, doesn't he? And absolutely, yes, yeah, 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 and very much wants it to be true. But and from Dickens, you move on to someone uh, much later who you suggest might be a successor to this sort of side of him, uh, the writer Danny Robbins. What's his winter offering this year? 
that's a pretty flattering comparison for Danny Rowan. I think you it? said it, though, didn't you? <laughs> I said in terms of his ghost hunting Yes, exploits. the ghost hunting, yeah. Although his play, 222, is highly enjoyable. Yes, no, he's a, he's a BBC broadcaster. People may know him from his, his previous podcast, The Battersea Poltergeist, which I think kind of got a lot of, lot of people through lockdown. You know, the timing was absolutely mm. perfect for that because it came out during the pandemic, an eerie time for different reasons, which was all about this real-life case of the 1950s. He does a regular podcast called Uncanny, which looks at various kind of alleged real-life hauntings. He's very even-handed. He has this sort of, you know, people that have heard the podcast will know he has this kind of very appealing sort of, you know, schoolboyish enthusiasm. But he's very even-handed. You know, there's always a sceptic. There was always a believer to filter the evidence. And, you know, there were no spoilers to say that. You know, there was never a <laughs> never a consensus reached on any of these cases. The new mm. one's The Witch Farm, which is about this case in, in Wales, um, late 80s, 1989, it starts, um, through to the mid-90s, and not quite a husband and wife. Artist Bill Rich and his, his then partner Liz um, move into this, um, she's pregnant with their first child, move into this remote farmhouse in Wales and become convinced that... You know the house is set against them. That it's that it's not just haunted. I mean, different kinds of hauntings, aren't they? You know, not just footsteps outside and wrappings on the wall, but you know, some sort of entity that's much more invasive and purposeful mm, and malevolent. Crucially, isn't it? And crazily malevolent. Yes. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's quite a well known case, and there has been at least one very good book written about it before. Um, but this, I think, will bring you know bring the case to a whole new. A whole new audience, and I think even if you're a, you know, even if you're a real believer, there is, <laughs> there is, you know, it's kind of an anti Mr. James, really. There is so much stuff that happens. The phenomena are so kind of lurid, and mm. it escalates so so far. I mean, some something is happening for sure in that, in that farmhouse, whether it's demonic or whether it's something more, more tragic and more and more close to home. You know, the podcast leaves you know intriguingly open. Mm-hmm. I mean, I heard snatches of it trailed. I haven't heard it properly, but it's got a very starry cast, hasn't it? I mean, it's very like it was a big audio production. I thought it was just a dramatic production. Is that right, or is it not? No, I mean they've hit on this. It, it's Danny Robbins and the the audio producer Simon Barnard, and together they've hit on this, you know, very simple but kind of winning formula. So you know, Danny as, as a journalist will do the investigation and interview witnesses and, and and Liz who was the woman involved is is still with us and you know still swearing blind that all of this all of this happened and she is there and, it, and is extremely persuasive as well but is interspersed with these little dramatic kind of excerpts often you know as I said in the piece necessarily quite expositional just to give us a little glimpse into the history Robbins himself is is a playwright, so you know he's able to write these these little snatches that just kind of pepper the pepper the discussions. And yes, you know they always have very good cast. You got Joseph Fiennes in this, and and Alexandra Roach, Guy Henry, Reese Shearsmith, and you know Bastille Poltergeist featured Toby Jones, for example, amongst amongst others. So yeah, it's always it's always an excellent cast, and it kind of needs to be. I think you know to, it needs to be a really good cast to sell these little moments of drama. It's hugely entertaining. It's it's great fun. Particularly in this one, there is there's a strand of something kind of sadder and darker as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's perfect, perfect winter listening. Mm-hmm. And then finally, to come back 
full circle, we are coming back, in fact, to M.R. James and a teller of his tales. Tell us about the Nunky Theatre Company. I'm sure plenty of listeners will know about Nunky already. If not, again, you know, hugely recommended. Yeah, Nunky Theatre Company is one man, Robert Lloyd Parry, who tours the country, really does tour all over the country at this time of year, late autumn and, and winter, just after Christmas. And what he does is very simple on one level and, you know, kind of, its brilliance lies in its simplicity, really. He performs by heart and often by candlelight, a huge range of M.R. James stories. I went actually to Cambridge and I saw him um, a couple of days ago um, performing two stories. He chooses these very interesting venues, um, sort of crumbling manor houses, kind of rickety theatres, occasionally like a little room above a pub. Um, on this occasion, in this beautiful church in central Cambridge, all the lights were turned out, a very small audience. You know, he, he doesn't allow an audience that's often much more than sort of 30, 40, 50 people. Oh, really? So that's small enough to feel intimate and as though you're not at the play, as though you are just all listening to it together. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and often for that reason, these, the, you know, these events sell out very, very quickly. And yeah, he will perform, you know, in character as M.R. James, two or three of his stories. And there's nothing beyond that. There are no effects. There's, you might have the odd prop. You know, there were, there were no other actors. There's no music. Um, it is just pretty much as James would have done it. You know, it's the story told by heart. And the power of the writing and the power of these stories is kind of brought over anew, really, when he performs them in this way. And what our listeners don't know is that while Jonathan was talking about the power of storytelling and how spooky it all was, my connection broke. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know if that means anything. But thanks to the magic of editing and Charlotte, our editor, here I am back again. Jonathan, thank you so much for telling us about all this spooky Christmas stuff. Do you actually enjoy a bit of Christmas horror? Yes, I absolutely love it. <laughs> okay. Just all the year round, even in August or, you know... Well, I mean, and this is such a great time of year, isn't it? It's inextricably linked for me with, with ghost stories and, and has been for years. So, yeah, it's time to be relished. It is. It is to be relished and then, you know, turn the lights on and kind of give yourself a shake and uh, see where you are. The thing that we should mention, actually, is that the Nunky Theatre Company, they also have, well, he has an event that they do on Christmas Eve, doesn't he? Can you tell us about that? Yes, yes. I mean, I believe this has been a tradition for a couple of years. Yeah, mentioned, gosh, the pandemic. Earlier and during that period, you know, he did quite a lot on online for, for obvious reasons. But something that that stuck, yeah, is the, is the Christmas Eve tradition of reading a ghost story. It's seven o'clock, I think, on Christmas Eve. It is on on Zoom, so you you have to be responsible for creating some of your own atmosphere. I think you know, and lighting a candle and turning the lights out and all of that. And he's performing this year, the Treasure of Abbot Thomas, which is a particularly nasty. M.R. James story for, for Christmas and, and one of my favourites. So, yeah, I'm, I'll certainly be tuning into that. <laughs> OK, and you said in your piece of uh, interesting thing, you said that the Zoom or the sort of Zoom meeting, what do you call it? You call it an eerie invention in its own right, often reminiscent of a Victorian seance. So do you think weirdly it is, it is quite an appropriate medium? Weirdly, yes, I think so. Yes, I mean, well, as you've just seen, there is something spooky about Zoom and people dropping them out and, 
you know, you, you can sometimes sort of see glimpses of their faces moving and no sound emerging. And then they, and then they all freeze. And you're constantly saying, you know, are you there? Are you there? Is anybody there? Reaching out <laughs> into the darkness. So, yeah, there's definitely an overlap. Wrapping the table or yes. clicking the mouse to try and find out what the heck is yes. going on. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, now we know what to do for a spooky Christmas Eve. Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. A pleasure. That is all we have time for this week, and in fact this year. Our thanks go to Lucy Lethbridge and J.S. Barnes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast and any others you might have listened to, produced by the wonderful Charlotte Party. We will be back in January, but for now, goodbye and have a happy holiday. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.